Hello friends and boys and girls, how you guys doing today? This is another COVID update with me and Petey. So we're going to give you guys some stats, what's going on in the hospital, healthcare, some new drugs that they're testing, clinical trials, and update our beautiful president, Mr. Trump. And yeah, just hear us bullshit and talk, guys. So thank you for subscribing. Who does? Who listens? Those five stars. You guys know the drill, right? So Petey, take it away. All right, guys. So let you guys know that I have started working on one of our floors, our quarantine floors, or our COVID-19 floors. Um, it's been two days now that I work there, so I'm slowly trying to uh, get a hold of things. For the most part, I haven't dealt with too much patients. I was uh, what I'm considered like a, like a runner or like a spotter. So I basically help out the nurses. Nurses go in the rooms if they need supplies, equipment. Um, then I, I provide them with that kind of stuff, mainly because uh, it's, it's on our unit. So I know where everything is compared to all these other menstrual nurses that are, that are, that are floating. So our unit currently is starting off as like a basic, basic med surge unit. So we're taking on rule outs and positives, and we're trying just to just pair positives with positives, rule outs with rule outs, but obviously it doesn't always work out. And then slowly as the other ICU beds fill up, we're going to turn into like a half ICU, half step down, half med surge unit. And then we'll see how the disease, pro these, the disease progresses. I think there was over 20 cases in my hospital. Uh, um, Positive-wise, probably a solid 50% of those, if not more. Or no, no, I'm sorry. So we probably have like over 20 positives for the most part. We have a handful of still rule outs. And I'm back tonight, so we'll see how, how it is. But just to throw some numbers at you guys real quick, uh, the amount of corona cases worldwide is about 768,000. Those resulted in 36,000 deaths and over 160,000 recovered. Just U.S. alone, we have about 155,000 cases with about 2,800 deaths. Italy is right behind us uh, with a case count at 101. Uh, then we have Spain with 85,000, China with 81,000, and Germany 63,000. Germany actually has a pretty low amount of deaths. They only have 560 deaths total out of their 63,000 cases, which is good. Um, they, they were testing early. I was listening mm -hmm. to the president talk. Germany started testing early, and they started testing in, in large, large volumes. They were kind of able to catch it a little bit quicker. Just for you U.S. listeners, statewide, New York is, is still in pretty big trouble. I know they're offering large sums of money for travel nurses that are willing to go to New York. But New York currently has 66,000 cases that resulted in 1,200 deaths. New Jersey right behind them at 16,000 cases with 198 deaths. And then we have California at 6,300 cases with 132 deaths. And the main issue right now, not only New York is... Louisiana and Florida, and I believe um, Pennsylvania, their cases are starting to increase quite dramatically. I think they've had over a thousand cases in the last 24 hours, and they're associating it right now for at least Illinois. We're still not in the surge. We're still considered these are the ones that came over here for travel. So some of these states are just seeing their, their travel COVIDs, and a lot of surges haven't happened yet nationwide. New York obviously is on a surge. That's why they have so much cases. And, and hopefully, as, as the days go on, we're able to test more and, and catch more and not spread this COVID-19 because it is a very, when you look at the signs and symptoms, it's very broad. as a very broad signing system, signs and symptom load. So it's very hard, hard to catch besides the testing. I think the big thing that we have to, let's first discuss like what's going on on the government level. And then we can talk about our experience. So like, President Trump said that it might take till Easter. I think yesterday he announced that it, 
the um, social distancing law or effect. It's going to be in effect till like end of April, April 30th. So that's minimum. That's minimum. Because that's minimum. Yeah, that's when they're projecting to, you know, kind of be at the peak. If not, they're, they're saying something about it's going to be at the peak at that time. No, they're going to say it's at the peak by, by Easter. So mid-April, it should peak and then hopefully go, go down towards the end of April. And then, but the thing is, it's my last longer, and I think it's going to last longer than April, than the end of April, just because, just because we start seeing less and less cases, we don't want like a rebound effect where we slowly decline and then, hey, everything resumes to normal, and then we see a, a giant uptrend again in cases. So I think this is probably going to last a little bit longer than the end of April. I think we're going to probably go into May easily, just, Imagine for, just for like a little bit of more, more safety. Imagine what's going to happen in New York, man. They have this giant surge more than anywhere in the U.S. because of the people just walking around. Imagine how fearful it's going to be to walk the streets of New York again after such an event. Dude, that's that's just mind-blowing, man. And speaking of New York, like the governor made an announcement and the Illinois one, and a lot of these governors are coming together and they're upset because they have to bid between equipment. How fucked up is that? So... Let's just say you're a governor from one state and you put in a bid, hey, I want to purchase a 10,000 masks for four units a piece. And they'll put in the bid and then the company calls them back and says, hey, we got a higher offer. California is paying $5 a unit. And they also have to bid between the federal government, which is FEMA right now. And FEMA's getting prioritized because they're federal and they're nationwide. So these governors are upset that they can't protect their own people because there's a bidding war going on. So that's super messed up that these companies are still making money like this, you know, and bidding and better offers and still profitizing while, you know, we're freaking fighting a war literally in the hospital. I think what they could do is they could pass something called the federal production act. I have no information about this. We have to get back to the next episode regarding that, but that would basically force companies to just produce these products and maybe hopefully have fixed prices, man. Cause that's not cool that, you know, governors should be bidding for equipment for us, you know? Yeah. I know there's a few companies out there that, um, that cause yeah, like when you brought up that, that bill, there's a few companies that already switched their production over to creating ventilators, masks, things like that, which is good. But there is that, that bill that the president can, I'm not sure. I don't think he signed it. I'm not sure if it's signed or not. We could probably look, look that up. Exactly. But what I'm, what I'm curious about is to figure out how like FEMA works for the most part, because like you said before, they're also bidding on these products. So if the, if, if the, if FEMA wins the product, wins the bid and they get the product, what did they, what did they do with it? Do they distribute it to the, to the States? How does that work? Because they obviously just can't hold on to it for themselves and, and then resell it. You know, that wouldn't make any sense. So I'm kind of curious on what FEMA's role actually is. If they're actually bidding for this, are they just dispersing it evenly among States or how does that work? Because I know the federal, government also has need stockpiles of, of these things and i'm not sure if they're keeping them for like future states that are gonna start getting a bigger outbreak we got to kind of get into good and nitty-gritty this is all a little bit complicated so fema like fema is basically helping everyone and states wise right so they have their own workers and employees and they have their own equipment so look at new york they're setting up like remember the little uh post that i sent you it looks like called like division tom clancy's like they're literally setting up like posts to do screening tests. They have, they have their own way of doing things. And I'm going to bullshit you right now if I say I know it. So that me and Peter are definitely going to do research about FEMA and get back to the next one episode. And we can just continue, man, because there's just so much information, man. Like this is a worldwide crisis, man. We never seen something where 750,000 people are freaking 
you know, have active cases going on right now. And let's not forget the positives here. Like 80% of these cases are recovered and discharged. You know, we're so fixated on deaths. Like these people are fine. Some of them just go home on an antiviral and they quarantine themselves. Yeah, just a higher, you- it's just a higher population that is tend to kind of go on a decline. But the main issue being why it's so scary is because it like spreads so quick and the signs and symptoms are just so basic. It could be kind of anything. That's why it's the most important thing for us to do is figure out like a quick test because some of these tests turn around and take, take 24 hours, hours plus, you know, and who knows how many, you know, um, people that patient has come into contact with. So I feel That's like if why. we get a, get a quick system for, for testing, I feel like we're going to see a, a nice decline and then figure out a, a way to kind of treat this like effectively. I know we're trying a handful of medications to, to do this. We don't really need to need a cure. We just need to kind of a solid treatment modality for this. Do you think your, our government is kind of BSing us and saying, hey, it's only droplet? Where that's freaking impossible. It has to be airborne, bro. How the heck did it spread so damn quick? Well, droplet spreads, spreads quick in general. You know, like droplets are, they, like they're easier to spread too. Like uh, how many times do you, do people, especially during flu season, like how many times do you blow your nose, sneeze, cough, and that that's, stays on surfaces? You know, it's not, it's not saying that droplet doesn't spread very easily. It spreads, it spreads very easily, not as, not as, uh, not as easily as airborne things like that, but, but droplets still is very easy way to spread. Of course, you know, you have that one meter, but looking at the severity of how fast this blew up in the cases, I'm speculating that it potentially can be airborne and maybe they're just, there's a lack of equipment. Therefore we have to say droplet because nurses would walk the heck out of the hospitals if you don't give them an N95 for an airborne patient, right? That's just my... My, that's my speculation, man. So let's talk about something that's happening in the hospital. We could talk about your unit, my unit. And I, I've talked to intensivists and they're doing clinical trials on drugs. And they're, they're basically, it's just, it's like they're testing. They're just figuring out what could and can't work. Like one of the drugs is called um, remdesivir. And this is something they're trying separate from chloroquine. So when we mentioned that anti-malaria drug, they're not giving this, these patients this drug because it would skew the results. So they're giving just the radesimir, and they're seeing if there's going to be any um, positive outcomes. And it's, um, it's an RNA-dependent polymer. So it's a drug that targets exclusively things that the, the virus uses to rep- replicate itself. So it's not like chemo where it's killing good and bad cells and hopefully we wipe out a cancer cell. This is directly to the virus. As of now, the way he told me with the ICU patients we have like on ECMO and stuff, he's just like, huh, we'll see what it does, you know? So it's just crazy, man. It's just testing and it's a waiting game. I, I, one of the patients, the sickest ones we have is just on full on ECMO, bro. And we're going to hear more and more of cases where, you know, a family was on a trip, was on a cruise ship, came home, infected the parents, infected the mom. Now she's, you know, on life support and it, it sucks. It must be really hard for the daughter or the, the brother, whatever's going on where, you know, you infect your mom or your dad and you're, you can't go see your own parents on life support. You have to call them over the phone and be like, how's my mom doing? And they have no idea how the situation looks, you know, and they're going to push for full code, full code, because, you know, they don't have the trauma of seeing breathing tubes put in a freaking trig, the ECMO, the lines, the bleeding. And, you know, that's another thing we didn't discuss. Have you heard how they're trying to make patients a DNR when they come in for COVID? Like, that's very unethical, man. I'm trying to, so while you were talking, I'm thinking like, 
the patients that get put on ECMO that get that do get vented, like what are the the percentage of them coming out of it? You know, because let's what if it's like it's like 0.5 percent of your survival. What if your survival rate is like 0.5 percent if you get put on ECMO, or even like two percent if you get put on ECMO? Like, is it worth those resources to you know, is 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 it worth those nurses and resources to put in a, a patient that has like that? It kind of it's basically showing that they're not gonna basically survive. So I, mean, I don't so want to be sad, but if if it's like a low survival rate, if you get put on ECMO, then maybe you know at that point we just say, hey, maybe you should make your family member a, a DNR because we could put her on ECMO, but somebody gives her two percent chance of, of living. But yeah, I, but, if, I, but if, I see I see what you're saying. Like from a financial standpoint, we're just spending a bunch of money in ICU bed, which might be like twenty thousand dollars a day treating a patient that has poor prognosis and you know how it goes when uh, palliative gets consulted and they talk to the family and they're basically saying, Hey, it's not going to work out, but we're still going to do everything for a whole nother week, you know? And we see it end on and especially in the ICU, like, Hey, we already knew what's going to happen, but it's, you know, it's not your mom, it's their mom. And it's hard for them to, to deal with that. And we just have to do everything, you know? So I, I see what you're saying. I don't know what's the mortality rate of ECMO though, especially mm -hmm. with COVID now. I think, you know, in a couple of weeks as research is coming out so quick, we're going to be able to see whether it's even worth putting patients on ECMO. But as of now, I mean, that's the only thing we can do because it, it's creating such bad ARDS that they're not proning them. They're just freaking doing straight up ECMO. Yeah. But the whole like DNR, if they, if they're positive, that might be a little, little bit too much. You know, that I probably wouldn't feel comfortable with asking somebody, Hey, it's like, Hey, you've been positive for, for COVID would you like to sign DNR paperwork because you know that's kind of what we're doing now, I, that's probably a little little too early to give the person at least a chance unless they come with like super high comorbidities like if they come out with, with uncontrolled diabetes and let's say they already have one limb cut off they come in with with a few wounds let's say they come in from like a nursing home and they have like like a stage three pressure ulcer on a coccyx like they're they're always sick. They've been sick. They're they're bed bound. They're bed rest. They can't talk. They can't do anything. Their quality of life is poor. Then then that yeah that that's like I'm okay with asking somebody to be a DNR and in that point. But if it's somebody that's walking into the hospital and they're fine except they're exhibiting these symptoms, like even if they have all these comor comorbidities, like if they're walking in, like it's at least give them a chance. It's I'll be not just it's not just uh one one set of, of protocols for everybody. It's we're all humans. We should kind of be treated differently. Each admission. I, I agree with you, man, but I'm straight up. Like anybody that comes in the ICU, my patient, like they don't have to have a breathing tube in. I'll straight up ask them stuff like, Hey, have you guys discussed code status? Do you want us to do everything in the worst case scenario? Like I always bring that upon them, not to freak, not to freak them out, but how often do you have you know, lunch with your mom or your parents and just ask them like, Hey, like, let's just see something happened to you. Do you want, do you want them to crack your chest? Do you want them to do CPR? Do you want them to put a breathing tube in? Do you want them to shock you when your heart is having a abnormal rhythm? Like these aren't questions you ask over a cup of tea. I feel like this is the perfect time to do it with quarantine. Hey, maybe we should know your family's decisions because these families talk about this shit when it's hitting the fan, we're intubating, they're crying and they're, they have so much emotions and how can you think straight? And that's, and that's, we're going to see more and more of those cases. We're going to hear more and more of those stories. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, I, yeah, I feel like each admission I ask those questions, I feel like that should be part of admission. I don't know. Did you, or when you do the mission, do you even do admissions in a hospital? 
like isn't that part of the mission protocol is to ask them if they want to be like a full code or they have any poa paperwork yeah definitely but i don't know what er does you know but if it's a transfer i always look at orders man because i i had that one situation it was like a nine-year-old 90-year-old and it was a very complicated it wasn't a full code of dnr it was um, no chest compressions okay to shock okay to give medications don't intubate so my patient at 6 a.m goes into vtac and i'm freaking forgetting what i can't and can't do because it's like a very complicated code so like Patients in VTAC, I have another nurse helping me out. I'm like look, going into the notes really quick and scrolling. I'm like, uh, okay, we're good to go. Let's freaking shock or let's give some amio, you know? So it's um, it's interesting. Mm. Let's um, let's so, talk. So yeah, so we could talk a little bit about like my experience for the most part because I've had two days of this, but I didn't like I said they didn't see anything critical. Actually, change of shift, we did see some somebody deteriorate that we transferred him out. But like I said before, so currently. I do heart failure. Our patients got moved over to a different floor and our nurses followed them for the most part. And our unit got turned into a COVID unit. So right now it's just, I guess you could kind of say like COVID overflow. Like we're taking the, the, the more stable COVID patients. So like the med patients and we have nurses that, that float over to, to the to the COVID units. COVID eight now is what we call it instead of the normal name. So some of our nurses come to help out. Some of the medicine nurses come to help out floats. Like it just, any kind of nurse really that can take any kind of patient is basically is coming to our floor. We still have a few ICU beds available on a different floor. So once those fill out, fill up, then we're going to be like half ICU, half just med surge, step down COVID. So we'll see how that goes. But majority of the patients come in like nothing, nothing like outstanding symptom wise, just your, some of them have fevers. Majority of them have, have a cough. A lot of them come in for like GI symptoms too, like abdominal pain, like GI issues, a lot of upper respiratory systems, like runny nose, cough, cold, cold symptoms, things like that. So it's very broad. So you can't tell if this is a flu, this is a cold or, or, or is it COVID. And of course they all get, they all get tested for the COVID-19. How's your um, like equipment? You know, we always talk about that. Are you like properly staffed with equipment, shortage wise masks? So yeah. So mask wise, we seem fine um, on that PPE. We're, we're fine for the most part, but we still haven't had a surge, so we'll see how, how it is. I'm not sure how much we have in, in stock, but right now with the N95s, we had the duck face ones, so we're trying to pair up positives with positives. So you wear one mask for the positives and a separate mask for the rule outs. So if you have a positive and a rule out, you would wear a different mask for each just to yeah. keep things from, from spreading. But as time goes on, I'm going to get more, more patients. I'm not sure that's going to change, but right now we're, I feel pretty safe uh, PPE-wise. So we'll see how that's that good. goes. But most, these, but most of the patients are, are stable for the most part. I haven't got a chance to look at the meds because I was busy for these last two days because it was the first two nights that the unit is considered COVID-8. So it was just kind of management stuff, trying to get things organized, situated, and kind of just figuring out how the flow is. But today, I'll take a look at, at the meds, what we're given in our hospital. But nobody really, anything super critical. We have a few patients that are on six liters, and that's kind of like, like the max. If they require more than six liters, that's what we would call the intensivist and transfer them to a, to a different floor to intubate if we would have to. We do have two rooms dedicated uh, to emergency intubations if you would have to. And the reason why we have it on our unit is because all our, all our units, all our rooms are, are negative pressure. And then, well, they're supposed to be negative pressure. They're considered negative pressure. And then we have two rooms that have double doors. So those are like, you know, extra precautionary. Those are the ones that we're using for like emergency intubations and things like that. We are not allowing any kind of high flow nasal cannulas, no CPAPs, no BiPAPs unless they're in like a dedicated negative pressure room for the most part, but we may have one of those patients. 
we did have a patient deteriorate uh, during change of shift when I came on. So what happened was uh, he was decently stable over day. He was on like four liters. Then they had him had to bump him up to six and he was on six liters for a couple hours. And then he became short of breath, like very, very dyspneic, short of breath. So we, we didn't intubate him because they're, we just took him down to a different floor and they intubated him there because we don't have any intensivists currently on our unit. So they intubated there and then he stayed there. But last time I checked on his stuff, he was maxed out on Levo, maxed out on a few other pressers. Uh, so he wasn't doing very good. So it just kind of shows you that when they do deteriorate, it kind of goes on quick and it goes on hard. Yeah, and it, and it happens software. quick because the ECMO patient that we had, within three days, she goes from, hey, coming in for nasal cannula to intubated CRT and straight up having ECMO, man. So these patients, when they when they deteriorate, it happens quick. And I and it's crazy why. And one of the reasons why is we, just like we mentioned last episode, is that whole cytokine storm. So that I'm just going to mention that one more med that is going to be super hard to pronounce, but it's called Sar-il-Umab. Um, goes by the trade name of um, Kevzara, and it's a human monoleucal antibody again against interleukin six receptors. So interleukins are creating a cytokine storm, which is creating inflammation. And this drug is being tested right now as well, clinical trials in our hospital to prevent the inflammation that cytokine storm from taking over. Because the virus is not the issue. The, the issue that we're fighting is the human response to the virus, which is creating so much issues. One of those things with tr- these drugs, though, is used for arthritis, so it's an immunosuppressant. So, I mean, you're helping the, you know, in this case, but I don't know what's going to happen when it comes to, you know, risk for infection being in the hospital. So that's just, I mean, it's a balance, right? Give and take, the, the benefits outweigh the risks. So we'll have to see what happens, man. Yeah, it seems like a lot of these drugs that we looked over prior to this episode is, it seems like a lot of them target inflammation, but different processes of inflammation, different kind of uh, stages of inflammation. So there's nothing really direct that we have that's going to combat this virus. I'm not sure how well into sequencing they are, because if they could sequence it, I'm sure they could find a way to kind of uh, fight this virus directly instead of using medications to kind of uh, prevent replication and prevent inf- inflammation. But I'm not sure how, how far on scientists are with that kind of stuff. I mean, you know, it takes months and things like that. So in the meantime, we just have to kind of fight the war and we are using equipment and medications that we already have to see if it's going to make a difference. And we just have to wait. I think it's going to take months, if not over half a year before we even have a vaccine or something to prevent this from happening. Yeah, it's played by your, I know, dude, I was really curious on how New York is handling this stuff because some of the videos I see in New York is it just it just is it looks looks sad, you know, like not like some people are wearing their like a regular like a surgical mask for five shifts in a row, you know, they're they have no N95s. Like it's scary to think about. Like they're reusing their gowns, reusing their gloves. It's it's a mess, especially in New York. But they're they're hit so hard. Like if you look at the numbers, like it's crazy. Yeah, and I think. They're offering, I mean, they're offering travel nurses a shit ton of money, but the working conditions are horrible. The ratios, like it's not going to be dandy. And just like you said, yeah, they're using a mask for a whole week, guys. Like, wow, the amount of freaking, hopefully nurses get a pay bump after this, huh? I doubt that's going to happen, but it's like, dude, we're, we're literally putting ourselves in the front of the danger, man. And we didn't sign up for this. We didn't sign up for being at risk so much, but yeah, me and my workers at work. Yeah, like me and my uh, the coworkers and I were we were actually talking about this. Like maybe this will give us some more like 
bargaining power. Maybe we'll have some more say in different kind of laws and the way healthcare is, is run because, you know, nurses are for sure getting sick. Like I know at our facility, they're having us wear like the regular masks, even when we're just on the unit, because some nurses are, are testing positive without exhibiting any kind of signs and symptoms. So now we have the N95s for the patients when we go in the rooms, and now we just got to wear the regular mask when we're outside the room. How about, the, how about this? Another, a nurse messaged me on Instagram and told me that she wanted to wear a simple mask for a, like a non-isolation patient, and they escorted her out of work because she was wearing a mask around the unit. She's not supposed Really? So yeah, it's going to be an interesting time of what's going to happen, but just like I said, I think something positive will come up out of it. So that's the update for you guys for today, and we'll have another update soon, and we'll find out what's going on with FEMA and figure out what's going on with the government. I know there's a bill that was passed we didn't mention. There's just so much, guys, to wrap up in 20 minutes. But if you guys have specific questions, hit us up on Instagram, send us an email, whatever you guys do, and let us know what you guys would like to know personally. So we'll see you guys next week. Me and Peter will chat you guys tomorrow. Have a good last. I just want to thank all the medical professionals, doctors, nurses, PCIAs, techs, anybody that's working at a hospital. You know, people that are clean, cleaning the hospital, cleaning the rooms, you know, this is going to pass. It's going to take some time, but thank you for all the work that you're doing. And for all our non-medical professionals, stay home, especially in the United States, because we don't want this to extend after April 30th. But if it has to, it has to. So, guys, thank you, everybody, for what you're doing. See you guys next time.